0: The Weird Wacky Wonderful Stories podcast is now proud to be part of the Low Tree Studios podcast network. To enjoy more great podcasts like this one, head along to lowtreestudios.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Weird Wacky Wonderful Stories podcast with your hosts Shelley and Bella. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 79 of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast.
1: Hi everybody.
0: So before we get started today, I wanted to say a big thank you to a regular listener that we have who's been getting in touch. Colin, thank you very much for your input and letting us know that you're out there listening to us. Colin Blaze is on Twitter. Yeah, really appreciate you getting in touch. There is something else I'd like to ask you guys to do as well, if possible. We need to do a Rating and review drive. We haven't had any ratings, believe it or not, on iTunes in the last seven months we've got all good reviews bar one and so good reviews yay please please get them in and it would be really cool if anyone who's listening to this show could rate us or review us wherever you are and we will shout you out on future shows when you rate or review us that would be absolutely amazing if you wouldn't mind please we need to get to the top of those iTunes listings again and that really really helps us but if you've got any constructive criticism, of course, you can email it to us at mail at uk, and we will take that on board. We're always looking for ways to grow and to improve what we're doing and what we can deliver to you.
1: So we do like suggestions as well.
0: Yes, absolutely. I got a suggestion for you. What? Make me a bacon sandwich. You make
1: me a cup
0: of tea. I made you a cup of tea.
1: Make me another
0: one. Make me a bacon sandwich.
1: I've made you a bacon sandwich before.
0: Before, <laughs> yeah. Once upon a time, remember back in 1978 when I made you a bacon sandwich. Yeah, <laughs> talking about back in the day. Have you been enjoying the Reminiscing with Tom episodes?
1: I have, yes. They've been very, very soothing in a They are. A it's funny
0: yeah. how many people have got in touch and said that they really do feel his voice really soothing and relaxing. And, and it's good because it, it takes you back to a different time, doesn't it?
1: Well, I think everybody's sat with someone and had sort of or been told a story or that you're telling a story to somebody else, so... Yeah, it's interesting. So what do we have in store for all of our lovely listeners today?
0: Well, we have the pleasure of speaking to another husband and wife team today, Bruce and Daniela Fenton. Bruce R. Fenton is a British multidisciplinary scientific researcher. His expeditions have been featured in mainstream newspapers such as the UK Telegraph and Daily Mail newspaper, as well as on the science channels The Unexplained Files. Bruce is also a currently recurring guest expert on History Channel's Ancient Aliens. Daniela Fenton is a psychic medium, contactee, and co-author of the book that we'll be discussing today, Exogenesis, Hybrid Humans, A Scientific History of Extraterrestrial Genetic Manipulation, the foreword of which is written by Eric von Daniken. So please welcome to the show Bruce and Daniela Fenton. Hi guys.
2: Hi. Hello, thank you for uh, having us. Thank you.
0: Wow, you're more than welcome. It's lovely to have some people on that are. You're not originally from Wales, are you? But you're living in
3: Wales now. Yeah, I'm from Gloucestershire, from Stroud in Gloucestershire. Oh, that's not
2: too far away. And I'm from Sydney, Australia. That's very far away. Okay.
3: (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) We're here today to talk about your book. I want to get into really some of the intricacies of the book without going too deep because some of our listeners, we've got quite a wide span. Some of our listeners know the ins and outs of everything and others are exploring it as we are. We are just a husband and wife exploring this idea of the weird, wacky and wonderful. So starting mm-hmm. off, the foreword of the book is written by someone who I'd love to have a conversation with and he's the author of the Chariots of the Gods book and probably the most well-known and instrumental books among the ancient alien enthusiasts and theorists, Mr. Eric Von Daniken, tell us how he came yep. to write your foreword.
3: Um, well, actually, he's a friend of um of our agent, so it was sort of through that connection that you know he's known him for years and years. And in fact, our agent was a uh, one of the co-founders of the Institute of Noetic Sciences with the astronaut um, Edgar Mitchell. So he knows a lot of people, knows loads loads of people. Where did your fascination in the subject begin? Well, for me, I'd say going back to when I was about eleven or twelve, I became quite interested in the the general, you know, plethora of mysteries, you know, not just one because it was lots of them, everything from Crystal Skulls, you know, and the Pyramid, mm. Yetis, Lake Monsters. and Because um, there was a set of collectible cards that you you got free with. I think it was with either Typhoo or PG Tea Leaves. Uh, my grandmother used to buy them, and, and there was a set of 40 cards, if I've got it right, uh, the Unexplained Mysteries. And she used to give them to me, you know, so I, I'd have a look at these and just think it was really fascinating, you know, that there was all these – crazy uh mysteries you know the say the weird wacky and the wonderful all of them was reflected in these little cards with a you know a picture and some information on the back so from from then on really i've had an interest and i suppose with time of course as you get older you know you can actually read more serious books on the topic than you would at 11 so it's a you know gradually deepening quest to understand the truth behind some of these mysteries and for you i mean Say.
2: well it's it's something that's been following me all my life <laughs> yeah. every time i try to get away from it, it just keeps and coming back to get me <laughs> so yeah. i mean the strangeness and phenomenon has always been around me it's it wasn't even really an interest from when i was like very very young so i was having experiences and even in my work um today apart from working with bruce you know my psychic and mediumship and shamanic work is involved in that also
0: and i know you've had contact experiences well haven't you
2: yeah, we both have. Um, we've both had contact experiences, different different types, and yeah, quite full on um, situations. So yeah, I mean,
0: come on, you can't leave it well, there. It's been come on, T- tell us about them. Tell us about the contact experiences and the, the different experiences you both had.
3: Okay, yeah, sure. We've had we've had quite a few of UFO type experiences. I mean, I've a couple of those. I remember one when I was fairly young. I guess about eighteen and. I'd been out at a party over in a, in a small town out in Gloucestershire called Malmesbury, and mm. uh, was on the way back to Stroud, which is not not very far. But you're driving out through countryside, you know, kind of middle of nowhere, fields and farms. Um, there was five of us in the car, and we noticed a sort of strange light in the sky. Uh, it was strange enough to you know make us stop the car and have a look. So we got out, and we we watched this thing, and it would be travelling along, and then it would it would literally you know disappear reappear somewhere else in the sky and be going in a, you know, different direction. You know, so it's like popping out, you know, around the sky, changing direction, going up, down, left, right, you know, to appear, be going in a different direction. And we're like, Well, clearly that's not a normal plane. Uh, it's not the behavior of, of meteorites. You know, obviously they, they tend to just come down, you know, they don't tend to go back up. Um, so there was, you know, there was something obviously implicitly very strange. And to me, that was either it had to be a technology that we have, On this planet you know which is super super secret and so far advanced of anything that you know you and i are made aware of Mm. that it would you know have to be almost alien engineered from a crash or something or it was not human controlled you know and it was something else but to me that's the option i would take because i think teleportation is beyond any planes that we have on this planet that as far as i know i mean so i've had that level and then also with some of the more direct Contact with intelligences um, with, with some of the experiences Daniela had, there were a few occasions, probably about two or three occasions, where an entity spoke through her to me and wow. was explaining that that was a non-human entity that um, yeah spoke to me and answered questions for me and stuff, which um, I included information from that on my first book, which is now out of print at the moment. But that's probably the most full-on in terms of talking to a non-human intelligence Obviously, daniela is a professional medium and usually would communicate with the deceased you know but but it is possible obviously to also to communicate with those that have never been human or are not human that is also something that happens to to quite a lot of mediums so i've had yeah a couple of different times and daniela can probably Share some of her experiences.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I um, remember one specific event where I was um, driving with my father back from my uncle's place in Sydney, just around the airport area and three, seeing like three triangular shaped objects above the control tower at the airport as as we're about to go underneath the airport tunnel to come out through the other side and continue on home and having traffic stop and you know traffic jam at that moment it was like time and and sort of you know people getting out of the car looking up into the sky and having a look at these three sort of like you know they were making like a triangular formation it was really strange and then within like a split second one shot off one direction the other one shot off in the other direction like you couldn't even see them disappear it just they just went there the third one that was left started following our car and I just noticed that it, just, it was on top of our vehicle and I we were driving along and we like went one way we went another way we went here we went there we we're trying to sort of shake it off And then eventually we lost it because we drove into a a really long road that had trees that sort of covered the road in an arch. And at that point, you know, my dad was like finally confessing to me that he'd been followed by these things all his life. And he didn't want me getting out of the car because I wanted to get out of the car and have a look. As far as I was concerned, it was like really fascinating and scary at the same time. But, um, yeah, so that's when I finally figured out, you know, well, my dad's been keeping this from me. He's never spoken to me about it, um, yeah, it must have been just before I turned 20. And um, from there onwards, I've had just weird experiences with, you know, the consciousness of these intelligent beings and having um, just a series of sightings. I mean, you know, we even had a sighting, I think it was, what, two years ago, when we first arrived from Australia, um, coming out of your parents' place, we had an odd experience. Yeah, it was kind
3: of a strange experience there. Yeah, you know, which, you know what we'd interpret as it seemingly was some kind of UFO type encounter. I mean, that's the way it came across. That was anyway, very it was surreal. A series of strange. My parents live up in, in the hills in Gloucestershire, up in a little village called chalford uh, and we noticed a, a low flying military plane when we came out, and then right. it was from then. It was a bit odd, you know. It was kind of evening, I we just wondered what that was about, and then as we traveled from there towards Cheltenham, and then there was a sort of strange beam coming up out of a field, you know, in a place in the middle of nowhere, there's, you know, there's no reason why a spotlight or beam or something would be shining up, and I of noticed that, Thought well, that was very strange, mm-hmm. uh, we kind of slowed down to try and watch to see what was going on, and then it was just next to a field, you know, and we noticed that well, it seemed like a motorbike pulled up behind us, there was a single light, you know, coming behind you, and then it just disappeared. You know, in the road, and like, mm-hmm. what was that then? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you hear about these stories about these objects that then release. Orbs that come out and mm-hmm. explore and stuff. I've seen you know footage mm-hmm. from other people mm-hmm. who've claimed to see these. That so,
2: was an odd night. Yeah, we yeah. turned off trying to find it because we yeah. were trying to find it, and we turned around and There's we turned into a field and there was and all these deer just everywhere, the which we never see in that area. So I've so, never it seen just, it.
3: Yeah, very strange. You know, it was a strange night. Strange thing, Yeah, you could say maybe someone else would say it was just a conflation of odd things to make you think it was. I can't say, but you know, either there was a UFO at the heart of that, or it was just a very weird mix of stuff that would. Match so many other UFO encounters where people Mm -hmm. say they see orbs and beams and strange animals that wouldn't normally be there. You know, those things all appear in a lot of UFO encounters. So we I not know lights but,
2: in the field. Yeah. started going so, around in a circle. So it felt,
3: it sort of, yeah. I mean, we obviously didn't get like proof, didn't get any photos, but yeah, it definitely had the feel of a UFO encounter of some sort. It was weird. Yeah.
0: Wow. Well, I was expecting when I said, have you ever, have you ever seen anything just to say, yeah, we saw this light once. But, um,
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. No, 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 no.
0: Okay. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, we might come back onto that because obviously we're here to talk about the book, but now you've just opened the floodgates Okay, so um, yeah, we might come back onto that. Going on to the book, uh, we mentioned the book in the intro there. It's Exogenesis Hybrid Humans, written by the both of you. Can you explain for listeners that may not be familiar with the term what panspermia is and how this forms a basis for your theory?
3: Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, exogenesis and panspermia are terms that are, are pretty much interchangeable. Uh, it essentially means that life, rather than originating from abiogenesis on this planet, you know, with chemical engineering, Geological processes eventually leading to life emerging from some hot, you know, mineral rich rock pool, you know, hit by lightning or whatever, which a lot of the conventional theories used to suggest. That instead, it's a model in which life arrives from space, um, say, bacteria or viruses or stuff, you know, in a comet or on a meteorite that land here and then reproduce in the oceans. Or it can be something more directed with, um, you know, an intelligence out there that seeds worlds, sends out, you know, little metal seeds or whatever that deliver organic material to planetary surfaces. And then that life takes root, you know, so that's essentially panspermia or exogenesis is a, you know, genesis involving a space element, the exo part of that. So yeah, that's, that's essentially at the core of the book is the idea that this well certainly is discussed in the book and the core is the human story but certainly i discussed the idea that this planet itself was was seeded rather than dna emerging you know naturally and to be honest a lot of scientists have pointed out the just the incredible complexity of dna that for it to just emerge spontaneously is very unlikely because you've got two separate very complex systems in dna which have to arise at the same time, you know, to, to, to make DNA functionable. It's not its not just that there's one complex system, there's sort of two that are working together. Um, it fits much better with the idea that there is life out there which has seeded this. Or, as one scientist, Ch- Ch- Chandra Wickham Singer, has kind of said, otherwise what you might be looking at is that the entire universe kind of functions as the petri dish for life, but he, he really doesn't feel that Earth on its own Offers sufficient um, complexity or base from which that kind of life could have emerged. That is, either it's a, a, a whole universal story with evolution of the universe uh, producing life, or that we have we have here evidence of directed panspermia.
0: So this would be pre dinosaurs, then?
3: Yeah. So really, if, if you look at um, the earliest signs of life, they are currently they look in terms of the archaeology, the geology, they found fossils of very early bacteria that go back about 4.2, 4.3 billion years. And and they suspect, because you know you never you're unlikely to find the very earliest trace, that they predict from that that it probably goes back about 4.5 billion years. Now, in terms of genetic studies, interestingly enough, they recently calculated that what they call the the last universal common ancestor um, of all life on this planet emerged around 4.5 billion years ago so the geology and the genetics mesh now put that in the context of the age of the planet the planet is 4.6 billion years that means that just within a hundred million years of the formation of the planet you know when it was still hot and it's quite dangerous really to live, you know it was uh, you know a very unpleasant place back then but even so life appears very quickly and that's added to the mystery because it was long thought it took probably a billion years of random events to lead to life emerging now we know that as pretty much as soon as the crust was ready for you know life to appear it did appear and again that meshes very well with the idea of panspermia that that this life has not emerged here that it, it just landed and it flourished so do you have any evidence for the theory what you have really, in terms of the origins of life, is you have these competing speculations. There is there's no concrete theory, right? Because the popular theory is abiogenesis, but nobody's ever come up with how that can function, how you can have geology and chemistry that produces dna there's no experiment there's nothing in the labs nothing that's ever been able to you know explain that so that is the popular theory but um, when you start dealing with it you can say look okay what well, was it god did god just create everything you know you can put that in as a theory um, you can put in obviously aliens did it but the problem with all of them is they're not really testable so this is why you say that they're all to some degree scientific or unscientific <laughs> as much as you know want to call it because you can't actually run an experiment to test them and, and that's the problem so i would say that the evidence in terms of the timing of life appearing points towards panspermia um, but if you're i guess a materialistic uh, well, you have got a materialist and a skeptic then you're on the side of well there's probably no life out there so it must be abiogenesis but it's not really based on them having stronger evidence it's more about limiting the number of entities that you bring into your model which is usually done in science you try to explain something with the least additions of a, you know of en- entities into your theory so that would be the basis for why we tend to find that most scientists favor abiogenesis and the origins of life on this planet but it's not really to do with direct evidence
1: in your book you mention that there are two sort of ideological camps one is the religious creationists and one is the materialist reductionists. Can you explain that? And then you also say that you think that there is a yep. middle way and explain what that middle way is.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of really popular ideas for how life has appeared here, those are the two most popular. You have the Christians, more fundamentalist Christians, not christian Christians, fundamentalist Christians that believe that essentially god created life in the beginning and that that's how life appears on our planet is a, a divine creation event and then you have competing against that really is the most popular model is the materialist theory that you know life has emerged out of the chemical and geological processes uh due to random events that you know somehow we've ended up with complex organic molecules that have combined in such a way in such a lucky chance event that it's led to a very simple single-celled organism uh, finally arising uh, and that those two camps really are I suppose, again, the, the biggest two in the world you know and the ones with the most funding i mean the creationists have got the institute of creational science creation of sciences and there's a couple of other organizations and then conversely you've got I suppose, most of academia which has this materialist worldview but one of the things about the materialist worldview also is that it sees consciousness and you know what we are you know self-awareness consciousness that that arises out of material so i.e., that our brain produces consciousness that it's our mind and is just a, a aspect of brain function now i don't hold that materialism is, is limiting in that respect i i would say that the, the middle way involves addressing the primacy of consciousness, and now you could say in some respects creationists are a bit closer to that. Um, but again, I don't think it's really their, their their focal point because they would say, you well, God is the initiating principle yeah. for this. Now, I don't totally disagree with that either because it depends on what you want to call God, and then you get into you know a subjective topic because you know there's, you can have two people in the room talking about God, right, and they could both have a very different description of what that God is. Um, but you, so you could easily say primary creation is from a consciousness that you could call god now that would be something in line with with my thinking that we're dealing with a universe that has arisen out of consciousness which is foundational and which is an aspect of the the quantum substrata of reality essentially fundamental reality that from which everything has come now that goes into a more a spiritual metaphysical kind of worldview but then if you look at the conventional scientists and what they say about the, the beginnings of our universe, the Big Bang. I mean, it's really essentially more of a metaphysical event. You're talking about something from nothing. Typically, you know, in, in the major arguments, they you know, there was well, essentially there was nothing. Then we have this kind of singularity, and the singularity, and this is you know smaller than an atom. You have this singularity which has potential to become anything. Like literally, it has been the rules of physics do not apply within the singularity you know they don't exist until the universe comes about which means that there's an unlimited potential of what could have happened from that singularity and i've heard some descriptions you know a whole universe of pink elephants could have just appeared you know nobody would have been able to say what direction this was going but once the universe unfolded the laws of physics unfolded with it and then we have all of these principles that we're familiar with today and how you know gravity works and you know strong and weak forces and all the rest of it but that that comes as part of the unfolding of our universe now my middle way is to do with the yeah, reinterpreting the whole understanding and looking at consciousness as being formative now you can get into of what is consciousness and there's, there's nobody can really give you a clear answer to that other than yeah. that we know that we have it and that we know that you know it um it either emerges out of brains and out of living beings or it was there already and is an aspect of fundamental reality which you know i favor that it's part of fundamental reality Mm -hmm. Uh, my middle way in terms of the creation of life on earth as well is that again is that Mm -hmm. i would say that there was a primal intelligence a primal consciousness which we can call god uh, and that from that non-physical and i don't go too deep in the book but i would say that non-physical intelligences beings existed before our planet before any planets And that as matter formed, as we have planets forming and the rest of that, some of that intelligence, that consciousness, went into matter and takes form and utilizes form to give us the first life in the universe. Now, I have no idea what that life was, because, you know, this is going beyond Earth now. You're talking about events that have happened billions of years ago. Uh, And that then some of that life has led to intelligence. And that intelligence, some of it has created DNA somewhere. And the DNA is then seeded onto this planet and probably other planets. So that would be a more in-depth um, description of what happened. Otherwise, it's easy for people to say, you're just kicking the can down. If I say, you know, aliens created life on Earth, what people will say to you is, you're just kicking the can down the road. Okay, well, this is where I would start the can. So that gives you the the flow of how I see yeah these events unfold. So, so
0: you're not you're not saying it's a, a little green man somewhere on a planet decides to fire a projectile at earth and says, you know, I'm going to start that sea monkey experiment there and see what happens.
3: Well, it is a bit like that, but yeah, but you, you have to get to how did that alien exist, right? So that's why I given I mean you that slightly longer explanation because of those people will always say, you know, "Well, you know, if you're saying aliens fired life to earth, or how did those aliens get there?" right? So that's what usually comes up. So that's why I'm saying, you know, I see there being a flow that goes all the way back to the the beginnings of our universe. But that, yes, you know, this planet is seeded in that way, that essentially you have, I don't know if you saw this, there was a newspaper article a couple of years back where they found um, up in the upper atmosphere, they had a detector that was impacted by, you know, small bits of dust and stuff from space. Now, one of the things it was impacted by was a a small sphere made of um, alloy, you know, really hard alloy, um, from which was oozing a kind of biological material. Now, Chandrawick from Singer, again, he's a panspermia theorist, and his team, they looked at this, and they believe that these are potentially seeds, extraterrestrial engineered seeds, small metal balls containing biological material that are fired out into space, and that they've literally detected one of these things so then it's not not entirely a hypothetical object you know wow i didn't know is. anything
0: about that
1: it reminds me of a flower and how the pollen goes and gets distributed mm-hmm. <laughs> what
3: it reminds me of some fungi have um, spores that uh have a uv coating and a hard shell, and it's mm-hmm. believed that it's possible that fungi seeds could travel through space
0: initially what i thought you were explaining was that it could have been a meteor or something like that that had come from another galaxy or whatever, and that came into our atmosphere and then obviously impacted Earth, and that released the DNA. But what you're saying is it could be something more engineered.
3: Yeah, I, I adhere to what is called directed panspermia. Now, uh, if you go right back to, say, Watson and Crick, the co-discoverers of the the structure of the DNA molecule, I mean, they when they realized just how complex the structure of DNA was, that they, they immediately began to question, could there have been a directed panspermia event? Just because they started to realize that this didn't seem like a structure that would have come about randomly early on, on the hist- you know, in the history of this planet. But, and again, if people look into that, you can, talk, you can say, look at what Crick and Watson's thoughts were on this. Mm-hmm. But essentially, there's a number of scientists that, yeah, have, have pondered this idea that perhaps it wasn't a natural panspermia event with a comet um, delivering life, but that it may well have been a a deliberate targeted panspermia and so again within panspermia you have those two camps panspermia and directed panspermia and, and i adhere to directed panspermia for, for a number of reasons one being again that I, I think it it's easier to understand how life arrives here so quickly i mean that looks more deliberate than just at some point yeah. a comet hits us it, it, it seems odd that straight away the minute we have a crust we have life it seems awfully uncanny that looked to me more like it's been seeded And then there's also events later in the timeline. The panspermia theorists tend to say that we have evidence later on that perhaps more bacterial viruses rain down. Now, in some of those cases, they point to the octopus and say that maybe the octopus arrived here as eggs, like frozen eggs on a comet. Now, this is actually in a, in, a, in a very serious paper with about 30 people's names on it, right? This is – and I don't know if you caught this in the news. They said that, you know, could there – you know, could the uh, octopuses be, essentially be aliens, right? They're talking about panspermia and octopus and stuff. Now, one of the reasons for this is the octopus seems to have some incredible uncanny abilities. For example, he can rewrite – it can rewrite his own DNA, uh, it has this, you know, as you, you've probably seen, like cuttlefish, octopus, squid, stuff. some of them have some remarkable properties. We've got this this camouflaging, instant color changes, you know, all sorts of things. they, say, and they sort of describe this as almost looking like it's borrowed from the future of evolution. And they're this stuff. super they're just, intelligent as well. Yes, they are super intelligent. And so there's some speculation there among scientists that maybe that they were actually aliens. Now, that's all well and good, but it, to argue that an octopus's egg arrives here in a comet I think is stretching credibility entirely because to get, how does it get into a comet for a start? How does it survive the transit in there? Should be dead, frozen in space? And then going through the Earth's atmosphere, how does it survive that? Now, if the Octopus really were, in some sense, alien, then you need a spaceship or something to bring it here. But the panspermia theorists in academia, most of them don't want to go there and talk about intelligent aliens traveling between planets because they have a hard enough time having their papers taken seriously because of the attitude within the academic sciences about aliens you know which is still a kind of a taboo
0: if you had the situation where you know in a couple of years time we go to mars for instance we could inadvertently leave dna or bacteria there couldn't we so could it also have been something that physically travel to this earth rather than rather than being fired at this earth maybe travel to this earth and left something here maybe they came
3: to explore yeah absolutely i mean you could have let's you know you could in a speculative scenario you could have aliens that land here and one of them goes to the toilet and the bacteria in their poop grew into a life form eventually you know you, you just you can have anything you can have the, the wildest scenarios can be possible right uh, the only thing that limits these scenarios is your own mind and your own skepticism really it's, it's not about the science limits it we, we cannot you know discount that that doesn't happen That you don't have aliens land on planets you know they drop some de- debris or something or you know they they drop their sandwich uh you know it's got bacteria in it and that, that bacteria spreads and you know takes over a planet i mean there's you could say that look if all the trillions of stars out there there's something like that probably has happened i mean you can you know you, can, you can, with those number of stars you're free to speculate you know what i mean it's there's no particular reason why at some point something like that hasn't happened now we know that with our own space program this is a concern and they're trying very hard to not contaminate other planets and in fact they really have to recognize that they probably have contaminated both the moon and uh, mars already because we didn't used to understand that. That viruses and bacteria and stuff could potentially stay on the surface of probes, right? It was thought that you know space and radiation and all that would kill them. Now it turns out actually that they're very hardy and that some of them seem to be able to survive in space, right? Which again is another clue for panspermia, the idea that these things can survive for periods in space. Uh, but also there was the moon crash, was it last year, where they had that? I think it was the Israeli um, lander, and it had these um, these, these organisms on it. it had these they called the water bears very hardy little animals and that crashed on the moon so for all we know now there may be a colony of um, these water bears on the moon mm-hmm. right um and then also with the mars missions in the past nobody really bothered to to ensure those probes were sterile um, so those landers and stuff in the past may well have carried microbes to mars and you know infected the martian surface with terrestrial life that's entirely possible
1: But then you've also got humans go into space, they come back and they are isolated in that when they very first come back, aren't they? They keep them. But Mm -hmm. what if you're kept in isolation for, I don't know, a month? Germ that you brought back, that you've breathed in, is still alive after that month. I mean, it is a risky situation, really to leave this planet, if you think about it, because you just don't know what you're going to bring back here, never mind what you bring with you, but what you come back with. I was thinking
0: about that when I saw the launch the other day, the guys going up to the ISS. Obviously, they haven't because they've been kept in quarantine for a, a period of time, what have you. But I was thinking to myself then, I wonder if they were to take Covid up yeah. to the ISS, yeah. you know, they're not going to get treatment very quickly. I suppose you've got to treat it in some ways like a crime scene, haven't you? Where you don't want to put anything there and you don't want to take anything away. You want to leave it exactly as is and preserved.
3: Absolutely, and in fact, you know, this is being discussed about the potential Mars missions, you know, human missions to Mars. That they have set up a protocol to you know just in case, because you know, if there were a virus on the surface of Mars and if it were able to infect, you know, human life, you know, you could potentially bring back. Something that would kill everyone on Earth, right? Because we'd have no natural immunity to it, yeah. um, and if it was particularly dangerous, you know, you, you really, you know, by the time, you know, it takes time to research a virus, it takes time to understand it. You could all be dead by the time you got to, the, you know, what I mean, to yeah. that stand. So we, we we have to be aware. So though they don't expect there to be, you know, active viruses on Mars, and certainly they don't expect them to be able to enter our system. You know, they wouldn't have evolved to. That's the thinking. They are aware they have to do a very careful um, containment of that, that, you know, you have to be at both ends of that. There would have to be a lot, you know, decaminate, decaminate what's the word? De-, 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 de Yeah, thank you, decontamination. <laughs> and also stringent <laughs> protocols on, you know, how you interact with the Mars surface, you know, and any material from Mars, and if it's brought back, you know, a stringent process on how that is treated and that, you know, it's not exposed to our... Our air you know or anything like that they yeah we have to you know they, they do have that in place you know they are putting in some quite tough protocols just just for the just in case now i personally believe there is life on mars and i don't say i just believe that i think there's very strong evidence for life on mars there was um a series of images that were taken by one of the rovers now i could, you know people look for this but they found what looks like and it certainly looks to me like fungi like a lichens On um, rock surfaces on Mars. Now a whole team of geologists and and experts on lichen and fungi looked at these images, and they said, you know, it's an absolute match. And said that obviously they can't say 100% because 100% you need to test it. You know, I mean, you need to do the experiment. You need to check it to be if it's organic or if it's a you know chemical geological. But they said based on the observed evidence, it appeared to be a type of lichen growing on rock surfaces, and you can see these. They look like mushrooms. I mean, they looked like mushrooms growing off the side of the rock. And there were uh, dozens of them, and others were poking out of the soil. The, the thing is, you, you just can't declare that as life found on Mars until you test it. And we don't have the equipment on Mars to actually do those tests. Which is the, the irony is we send a lot of probes and landers, that, but they're not equipped to search for life and confirm life, which why that is is an open question i think that's bizarre baffling yeah, and ridiculous true. and then on the other side of that when we did do the last time we sent a probe that was designed to look for life it detected it uh, and the guy who invented that that system says that he's still to this day is absolutely certain that we confirmed life at that time this is but then the, the nasa team kind of uh, erred on the side of caution and said well maybe there was something wrong with the, te- the detector but then they've never followed up so you know it's a, it's a strange situation if you you had a positive signal you should have sent the next probe to confirm it exactly and we've never done that
1: obviously there are many stories of sightings and also of the abduction type scenarios where things have been implanted into people if they are superior to us what would they why would they then do this stuff to us. Pregnant women had their babies taken and all that sort of stuff. Like, if they are more advanced mm. than us, why would they need to do that? You said in the book at one point that an alien being doesn't have to actually have a body, but what would the purpose be?
3: Sure. I mean, obviously, we have to, to some degree, you know, speculate, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah but one of the things like, I always say to, yeah, always say to people that with this is, as well, we also have to be um, aware uh, that. If we do speculate on questions about why extraterrestrials do things that we we have to try not to limit that in the way that you know why would a human do it you know why would we do it yeah and and that's always a problem because you know of course it's implicitly so difficult to think in non-human terms as a human being right so but so if you've got try and for these kind of topics you have to sort of put yourself a bit into the scenario of say what would we do if we were a space-faring civilization? At least that's as, as close as perhaps the human mind can get to this. Or, you know, to look at you know, sci-fi ideas, you know, people that have really stretched their minds to the, the furthest point that they can in terms of speculating on what aliens might be like, you know, how they might think, um, what things they might need. One thing we do know is that there's very little on this planet of interest apart from life. Uh, we don't have any particularly unique minerals. Um, so let's say that there is a advanced civilization out there. Uh, they either know about us because they seeded us or they know about us because they found us from radio waves, whatever it is. Now, if they were here and they wanted something, We can narrow that down quite quickly because you can find all of the valuable minerals, you know, gold, platinum, what abundantly in asteroids. And asteroids are far easier to mine than planets. So straight away you can you can knock that off the list that they're not interested in our you know our mineral resources. Water, lots of that out there, frozen ice caps on moons and on asteroids again. So they don't want our water, we assume they don't want to eat us because the others you know, are rounding up and eating you in huge numbers, right? So there's the, the kind of classic ideas you can kind of remove. So then you, you have to sort of stretch your mind and think, well, what is there on this planet that is unique and doesn't, you know, doesn't require just killing everyone or eating everyone? What we do have is life and DNA. And so we have a lot of unique organisms, plants, um, you know, all sorts of you know, viruses, bacteria. That would be the only thing of interest. Right. And there's a yeah. few cutting-edge scientists that sort of said this that you know if there is anything here, they want it will be DNA. It will be uh, unique codes of DNA because there's possibly there's plants that are useful to them on another planet, right, or that there's a stretch of DNA code which they could take from an animal here and possibly embed into themselves. You know, if they also are running on DNA, right, which again is a, a speculative leap, but if if DNA is common to other life forms. Uh, in the universe or again if they created it and seeded us with it then they know it is so useful to them <laughs> so then if you've got that side of it then you can start to see well okay we have these claims that these et here seem to be very interested in human dna so that starts to look a little bit less crazy if you put it in that context So why would they want to DNA? well that in fact is that the only thing useful on this planet is dna and i don't think it's just human dna because you, you also hear accounts of animals getting yeah. taken and obviously because you've got things like the phenomena of, of cows being eviscerated and all that stuff but also people have seen animals being taken up into these craft gear, crocodiles um, there's even been a couple of strange events in the last few years where a whale was found in a jungle and it looked almost like it might have been dropped there and yeah, um, there's great white sharks that. <laughs> look at that's quite funny I, I i read and you know keep an eye on for all sorts of strange stuff but also great white sharks have been turning up with their with this and their organs missing. There's been some speculation that possibly that was to do with with orcas attacking them. But the, the cases are very odd with, um, with surgical precision removing um, certain organs from these great white sharks. And obviously, there's not many things that want to tackle a great white shark. Um, so it doesn't seem that it's just from us. There is evidence that other animals are involved in this. So, and that actually, again, meshes with the idea that there's potentially an intelligence that is interested in DNA. Now, again, why would they want our bodies and then you can go into some really strange and potentially creepy areas because um, this is something that i guess people don't know very much about but if if anyone's sort of familiar with this idea of transhumanism and post-biological intelligence which is basically um, there are people today who believe that it's essentially inevitable humans will merge with machines and you know we're on our way there a bit you know the phone is almost Inseparable to most people, but of course, there's people with chips and you know and replacement eyes and heart gadgets and you know the, the, you essentially once you have any technology merge with you, you're a cybernetic in some sense, right? Mm. And that we can see that that path is unfolding quite rapidly. You know, you have robot legs and a chip in your brain and that that's all coming. If not here, there is a point where they believe that you can essentially upload the human mind and that you could reside within a, a silicon network or some echo of you. I mean, you, know, if you get into a philosophical there of whether or not it's really you, right? And even by implanting chips in your brain, there's a few you know, cutting edge thinkers say that there, there's a point where one of those chips, one of those upgrades marks the end of you as a human. At what point are you no longer human? What point are you the AI chips that are doing the thinking? If you imagine that out there in this cosmos, we have intelligences that have gone down that path. And some NASA experts estimate probably 90% of advanced civilizations will have become post-biological i.e that they've either gone extinct and left only their machines their ai and their robots behind which are now living as planetary civilizations or they have merged with machines deliberately and have uploaded themselves into silica and that now potentially travel the universe in silica networks and in you know could even be moon-sized computers that just float through space which actually are are, uh, super intelligences Containing alien consciousness, which is, you know, again, you sound sci-fi, but these are the things that they are speculating may well be out there. The reason why I'm saying all that is, there's a two-way street there because (laughs) you know it's easy in a way to think about the idea of the upload, but as one scientist recently wrote in a a, um, you know speculative paper, what about the other way? What about if there's an advanced intelligence out there that has been post-biological for a billion years or something, you know, and and feels that actually it doesn't want to remain that way. It wants to go back to biology. Wants to transit the other way. There's no particular reason why that, that is isn't impossible. If you can go one way, you should be able to go the other. Now, what they might want is bodies. Now, those might be, those might be rare in the universe. So if you have a planet here, we have a billion people uh, that are reproducing all the time. And, you know, there's lots of fetuses, lots of eggs available. There's lots of sperm available. So if you decide you want to come back from being essentially an AI echo in a machine and have a body, then this planet has an unlimited resource for those. So that is, you know, it's a sort of creepy thinking, but it could be that, yeah, you know, that literally there is an intelligence that wants to take bodies, create bodies for itself, and return from the the strange world of of living in cold silica.
1: You can use that and go. That's why they want male sperm, and that's why they want the mm-hmm. eggs from the women because yep. they're trying to figure out how does that bit bodies. work, so that we can do that, like test tube babies
3: <laughs> they can grow themselves bodies in yeah. huge numbers you know that you could have and as people do report in their contact cases they say they see these tubes with developing embryos and developing babies and stuff in tubes in this that's in that's actually really of liquid. creepy because
1: i never really thought about it like that before i i always tend to think of it they're coming here and you know they're not really into anything malicious and it isn't is it if they just want to know that well, that's not really that's not really malicious that well- but it for us it is
3: no more than us testing on animals exactly. right no more than exactly. what we do as humans right
0: yeah. exactly yeah exactly we, we look at it this side and we go oh, that's terrible yeah. <laughs> you know, and, yet, and yet, you're absolutely right. Moving back on to some of the science now, you talk about later on in the book of a PhD student that you worked with, Adam Benton, specifically chromosome 2. Can you explain how this factors into your theory?
3: Sure. I just quickly clarify I did not work with him, but I read his information oh, and i okay. in the book. Thank you. He has a really interesting article on dating of the fusion of chromosome 2. Now, if most would probably understand that we as humans all have 46 chromosomes, other primates have 48. Now, we know that at some point in prehistory, there was a fusion of two ancestral chromosomes, which give us the, the long chromosome 2, uh, and that this is, you know, it's been considered by uh, both in some of the materialist sciences, but also in creationism, along so it's a signature almost of the beginning of humans, that, you know, this is to do with the mark of what marks us different from the primates. Uh, it seems at that, that at that fusion site there's a few interesting things for example you have a number of additions and deletions of of information rather than just a total fusion it's almost as if other information has been removed or added at that site in the fusion and also it happens to be on an active brain gene um one of the as a spanish researcher who points out that some of the things it does are to do with reproductive system, the immune system, and the brain, which, again, key areas if you were trying to modify something. Benton points out that, you know, that if we're trying to get the data when this happened, we have, there's a couple different ways you can do this. One thing he notes is that Neanderthals and Denisovans also had this fusion. We, we know that now thanks to having recovered the, the genomes of these other archaic humans. Um, so the fusion has to occur before the split between these different lineages. So we've now, very recently, we have managed to pinpoint that split as being around about 750 to 800,000 years ago. Now I put it as 780, which is in the middle of that, and as seen the book, I talk about 780,000 years ago a lot of times, being uh, a period when all sorts of stuff is happening. So uh, not just this, but so at this point, and then Benton looks to see also whether or not, you know, how far back it goes. Could it have been at the time of the split? with um, other primates, or is it more recent? He was able to look at it in terms of when did the ends of those original chromosomes to have a slower kind of mutation rate because the ends of chromosomes mutate faster than the middles. So you could kind of tell that there's a point where they fused, where then changes the mutation rates of what would have been the ends of the chromosome. Uh, and he was able to determine that it happens somewhere around about 750,000 years ago. So i.e., again, you're back at that point, the beginning of the split. And because we know the split occurs at about 780. So here's around 750 is, is right. Yeah. You know, so it takes you back to that 780 again, that this seems to happen bang on the moment that we split and we have all these large-brained humans appearing that um, you know, go down their own paths, but that we all come from the same event. And, and I would say that event is the fusion of chromosome 2 and some other changes in the genome. So it's, it's really a fascinating piece of evidence that anyone can go away and look up. You'll see that there's a lot of information on that.
0: There was also meteorological events, wasn't there, around that time?
3: Absolutely. Um, in some respects, I think it's um, incredible that we don't hear more about 780,000 years ago because we get a lot of articles about 65 million years ago and the eradication of the dinosaurs with this impact of a large object from space. We don't hear a lot about 780,000 years ago, and yet, they, in fact, there was an object which they think was the same, potentially was the same size as the one that eradicated the dinosaurs, and that this this impacted in Antarctica and left a crater 200 kilometres by 200 kilometres. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, absolutely I wonder whether that's one of the reasons why
0: we're not allowed to go to Antarctica.
3: Well, there may may be some other strange things there. I mean, I can get to that as well. I think there could be strange things there. But you have that, and you also have impacts at the same time, around this time, 780,000 years ago, in Central America, um, down in um, Tasmania, you have up in Southeast Asia. That there is essentially a multi-directional bombardment, and you know I talk about that in the book that this is an, not a natural event. You know, it's a very anomalous event because normally, apart anything else, normally you get one of these big things uh, hits us every 100,000 years or so, right? So the idea that suddenly we're getting hit from all sides within a very short period of time doesn't mesh with with the normal flow of events in terms of impacts at all. It's very anomalous.
0: One of the other things that's really weird about Antarctica is it's the only place that we don't have listeners. So there's got to be something going on.
3: <laughs> uh. Yes, gee. I mean, <laughs> the only continent I haven't explored um, as well at all. I've been to is six it? of the seven, but wow. it's very cold there.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'd love to go to Antarctica. I keep looking at it on Google Maps, but it doesn't change. So both you and Daniela wrote the book together. I feel like I'm, I'm doing Daniela a disservice, really, because we haven't really brought her in too much. Well, I want to ask you, Daniela, obviously, you, you wrote this together. Did you concentrate on different parts of the theory? How did the work towards the book split?
2: I um, sort of like um, shared more the spiritual aspects, I guess, and more the the weird stuff. And Bruce was more the mm-hmm. scientific and historical and anomalous researcher. So, I mean, it's just it's it's a it's a weird blend the way we work together because I'm the one that sort of has the weird things happen, and he documents it, and then he goes away and he like looks at it and pulls it apart and finds what's going on or what the backstory could be to what's actually going on and then the picture becomes clearer and then we get a book so it's it's a it's a very strange way of putting it together but I mean some of the things yeah Bruce and I were talking about and you know we'd write things down we'd take notes we'd go back have a look compare you know see what other um, data we had from other you know things that we'd written and then the book produced itself really but, um,
3: love experiences. Yeah,
2: things. yeah, it's mostly my experiences. I'm not a very researchy sort of sitting there for hours on the computer type of person i'm more into you know my work and and horses and and some horse broker also but the thing is yeah it's just we have a very strange way of sort of like connecting the dots with things
0: so if you were to try and entice someone to read the book through one of the weird stories that you put in there what would be the one you would pick
2: yeah probably the uh, the time lapse situation that i had because that's probably the one of the strongest things that's ever happened to me and it, it happened over A year and a half. It was something involuntarily that happened, and I can't call it channeling. I can't call it that, you know, I was sitting there waiting for something to happen. This is something that was physically happening to me. A type of, I'm not sure if if you call it contact or if you call it abduction or what you would call it. Some people that we've spoken to have called it a rite of passage, others, you know, have called it, you know, remembering past lives. And things like that. But I mean, it's just a very, I guess, it's hard to describe it. And I don't think it's something that happens to a lot of people with the, well, with the way it happened to me. For me, it would be the time lapses where I would travel back to Mexico during the 7th century to the city of Palenque and have interaction with beings that were not, you know, some of them were from that location and others were definitely not and the way i fit into that into that life because it was always the same life i was going back to the physical differences that i had the things that i saw that were going on the impact that it had on me when these things would happen because i would genuinely like go to sleep like i'm going to sleep every night like a normal person and then sometimes even hours like maybe 4 hours would go past and i would start to have one of these experiences and with this i would always When I would return, there would be like obviously changes to me. I would have scratches and bruises. And I remember on several occasions um, having been given something to drink on that side to wipe my mind of what I'd seen and then being sick, you know, and I was unconscious. So, I mean, I remember one particular event where I I was in an altercation Um, because I was in a laboratory underground and I was sort of like looking under the city and trying to figure out what other beings were doing there and, you know, what their role was at that location and coming back with black eyes because I'd been bruised, I'd been hit. So, I mean, things like that. that, (laughs) How do you explain that to people that really can't comprehend what's going on with you and physically you're bringing things back with you when you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you're more exhausted than when you even went to sleep and have that going on spontaneously every single week, at least three or four times a week and going on for hours. You'd be like, you're going out of your mind. And it it definitely did change me as a person. It changed my personality quite a bit, um, the way I saw things, the way my thinking process um, was between like now and, and then and then before that. So, I mean, for me, the probably the most complicated part of the of the story and of the book and probably will write more about those time slips um, in another book is that, and sort of sharing that openly.
0: Well, we'd definitely love to have you back on for that. That, That's right (laughs) up our alley as well. Just thinking about what you were saying there is blowing my mind. You must look at the world in a totally different way to say me or, you know, anyone else that may may be walking down the street at at a particular time.
2: Oh, definitely. And just wondering, you know, who else is had an experience like that and how has it affected them as a person? Because it's not your typical, I guess, I mean, what is typical anyway? You know, you're kind of like your contact. What are you in contact with? Is it a consciousness? Is it that you're physically being dragged out of your room or your soul is being taken out or your, you know, your memories changing? So I mean, even like, um, my thought process really changed. I really felt that physically there were so many changes with me, even like with my organs and things like that. And I have had, this is something quite delicate I'm going to talk about, I have had fetuses plucked from my body before I reached the third month of pregnancy. Um, So, I mean, mean, I'm aware of these things happening to people and it's quite horrific to think that, you know, Something's been taken from you. Don't know where it is. You know what have they done with it? So I mean, you know, it's the full blown situation happening. Oh, I'm
0: so sorry you've been through that.
2: Yeah, that must have been Thank horrible. you.
3: Just, as you say, though, yeah, we sometimes it is like being um, in a different reality to other people. And I, you know, I'm fully aware of that because I mean, you know, you can have a call where in a way, you know, in some respects, you might as well be on the phone to two people living on Mars um, and that, you know, you're on Earth and you're calling us and we're on Mars because if, if you're an experiencer who has all of these things going on, you know, you're aware for most people, at least as far as you know, for most people, it's so extraordinary, you know, not and as you said before, the news, just to maybe sort of say they'd have a UFO and they've seen a light in the sky, but if you've had a life, what I would say is more like, there are haunted houses and there are haunted people Almost, mm-hmm. you know that we'd be one of the category of haunted people where you have so much strange stuff that's yeah. happened to you mm-hmm. that you're essentially living in a different reality mm-hmm. to other people I and mean, although of course you can you can meet them on many familiar terms because we all have to go to the supermarket and we all you know, have to do certain things, right? Where we obviously we understand how that normal reality functions, and we also live in that. But we have another part of our life which is quite extraordinary for most people, and it's it's hard to fathom. You know, and I totally get that because I know that if I was in someone else's shoes, looking in or listening in, I'd think, wow, that's you know, God, that's mind bending. Mm-hmm. You know, um but of course, it becomes blasé in the same way that if you spent your whole life. I guess living in the mountains as a mountain man um you know it would seem extraordinary to me that you lived like that but for you it becomes become normal after 10 yeah. 20 years right mm-hmm. you know, living in the wild or something and that's for us it's like that that you know if you have 10 20 years of all these things happening in the end you find that you, you describe them in a very blasé down-to-earth way because it's become so background um you know of course there's still things that shock us sometimes but i mean overall you know we've become able to just talk about it in a very mundane way because it's so long a bit going Mm -hmm.
0: on well i'm a true believer in the fact that it follows generations as well and i know that Daniela, you said that your father had had experiences and so Mm. yeah
2: he did
0: so the fact that you're now having experiences as well kind of fits with a lot of the other stuff that i've read in the past
3: Yeah, Mm
2: -hmm. there's
0: something that I heard doing the research for this I also listened to other interviews that you guys have been on as well and there was one which I thought was absolutely fascinating whereby you talk about a study that was done by another researcher or scientist involving placing a gorilla in plain sight and another one that you're talking about with the basketball court and the gorilla runs on and you're supposed to be concentrating on a basketball and you miss the gorilla but then you also Mm -hmm. go on to explain A study that was done with academics and their perceptions and and how they're noticing things if you know what i'm talking about can you just explain that to our listeners because that was i found that fascinating
3: yeah that is a really a really cool study um yeah there's a guy over in the the university of cadiz there's a team there that they wanted to sort of understand how um, scientists in the seti world the search for extraterrestrial intelligence you know how how they would perceive anomalies in signals was the kind of underlying idea now so what they did yeah they included a little gorilla into a planetary landscape and so then you know they tested to see which people noticed this you know anomaly essentially in the image and funnily enough yeah what they found was that those with the very logical intellectual structured kind of thinking which i.e. most scientists they tended not to notice the anomaly it was more the abstract artistic um, types that would notice on average by far it was you know weighted much further towards them and that's kind of funny because obviously it highlighted that in some respects those we rely on most to notice anomalies and, you know, in that search for his treasure life, you need to be able to notice the strange, you know, it's going to be something anomalous that would flag up aliens, um, that these were the people that were least likely to spot it. And that is that's highly problematic because really, of course, you need people that are intuitive and they're going to say, hey, there's something weird there. I just get a funny feeling about this. Let's double check. Uh, and you, you need that kind of thinking. And so they, they've really uh, pulled that apart and found that, you know, that there's an issue there. And I've actually I've communicated to one of the main guys from that. And he's done he's another study recently. And I don't know if you caught this one, but he pointed out there's anomalies on the dwarf planet series that looks like a geometric shape, right? They, what they found, they tested this by having an, an AI that had been trained to recognize geometry in pictures, and they used a human test group, right, who were not scientists or trained in SETI or anything like that, and they, they showed them these images, and they found that both the AI, and I think it was the majority of the people, uh, noticed that these geometric patterns and it was um, a square circle and a triangle i think if i remember this right got the, a large triangle inside is a square and then sorry it's no circle and then a square right and so very odd and that this thing is sitting inside a glowing spot inside a crater on Ceres, and so it's a point out that you know you've got a problem there because then the SETI scientists are sort of like well it just means that we can't trust ai that the ai might deceive us but like he points out, he says, well, you could say that. Or is it that we are just unwilling and unable to recognize anomalies? Yeah. And that, again, we just default to the, it must be something wrong with the AI. You know, and it must be wrong, something wrong with the human perception. Oh, there can't be anything there. So there's, we have two different problems. You've got that bias and skepticism and also yeah, the inability to see anomalies. So we have a lot of problems with the, the very people that are looking for these things.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering whether it's, it's like a nature or nurture thing, whether it's their analytical mind that is mm-hmm. preventing them from doing that or whether it's the process of going through the amount of academia mm-hmm. that they've gone through and then the training that they've gone through that will kind of indoctrinate them if you like into discounting something yeah. they can't explain
3: yeah and I suppose in different people it could be one or the other or both or both yeah um, but yes certainly it's um, there's something you know that is disproportionately weighting um, scientists towards that not noticing or dismissing kind of thinking now, I understand that you have to be rigorous and sceptical in the sciences, but I think we have to be careful. If it's in a search for extraterrestrial intelligence and where you're you're explicitly looking for strange things and anomalies, that you can't just start discounting things because they seem a bit weird, you know, yeah, because yeah. that's ridiculous. Because, it, it, yeah, it should be that weird is the red flag for something.
0: Yeah, exactly. If the apple had have hit Newton on the head and he'd have gone, well, actually, mm-hmm. that, that shouldn't happen, and just discounted it.
3: Where would we be now? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You have to, you have to question these things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Listen, we really enjoyed the book. We read, parts of it because like Mm -hmm. yourselves working on two different elements we sort of divided the book up and and had a look at different things Mm -hmm. ourselves so that we could cover as much as we could in the time that we had we really enjoyed it and I think the fusion of the two different sort of perspectives yours again Mm -hmm. from the scientific and Daniela's more the sort of spiritual side of it I think really worked and I think it really did give the book a nice roundness so I got to compliment you on that it really was an enjoyable read
2: thank
3: you yeah glad it works
0: yeah no it did absolutely can you give people again the full name of the book and tell them where they can get it and if they need to get hold of you guys where they can and where they can find out more about what you're doing
3: sure absolutely so it's called exogenesis hybrid humans a scientific history of extraterrestrial genetic manipulation And obviously, again, you have the forward with Eric von Daniken for anyone who's fans of his work. And they can get it from any bookshops once they reopen. Uh, But in the meanwhile, online, you know, you'll be able to order from a bookshop's website or, of course, on Amazon and Borders and all the big online stores. They'll all have it. Um, We are also making a short documentary based on the book, which should be done by mid-June, most likely. So if they keep an eye on us on our websites and mine's brucefenton.info info. Daniela has Daniela uh, I also have hybridhumans.net, which is kind of a web magazine. And so you can keep an eye on those websites and you know, as soon as I've got that video done, you know, I will obviously put a trailer or something up and they'll be able to get information about that. And where will that video be available? That will be on Amazon. Excellent.
0: Well I can't wait. I know obviously you've done work before for ancient aliens and those sorts of things before. So I'm sure you're no you're no stranger to being in front of the camera.
3: No, that's right. Yes. And it's been arranged by someone that was a kind of really liked the work and has arranged to have this and he sent his film crew and i was filmed here in, in wales um and they've edited it in the us and you know so they've been doing all the editing side of it but yeah it was good yeah so i it was mostly me being interviewed and then you know slides and images supporting what i'm saying so hopefully it's useful to people for anyone who's you know not a big reader and that would rather sit and have it summarized you know in a visual format so that's why i thought we'd cover that base as well
0: well make sure you send the information to us as well and we will also put that on our website as well for people to right. uh, to get hold of as well will do Absolutely. Bruce and Daniela, you've been absolutely fantastic. You've blown our minds. Um, we're going to go and have a strong <laughs> coffee now um, <laughs> and try and digest some of the things. A coffee
2: or a you... cider? Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
0: No, I really, really appreciate it. We really enjoyed the time that we spent with you, and and you're welcome back anytime, whenever you've got anything else, you know, in progress or released.
1: Thank you. No Thank worries. you. Okay.
3: Enjoy the rest of your day. And Thank you. you. All the best.
1: Well, that was a pretty interesting episode.
0: Yeah, I think so. There's a lot there to, to think about, isn't there? Like like we said during it, I think that we need a coffee now and that bacon sandwich we were talking about and we need to sit down and really think about where we all come from. Guess what? Okay, go on, I'll, I'll indulge you.
1: I have just found out that I most likely have some sort of alien DNA inside me.
0: I could have told you that before this episode.
1: See, I wondered why, when I had our baby Estron, why he came out as a little green man, and now we know.
0: And it also explains Bryce.
1: Well, the boy's got a date with some clippers. He
0: just he won't let you know anywhere get... near him.
1: That's all right. He sleeps sometimes.
0: <laughs> He'll end up with one side of his head being done because <laughs> he slept on. You have to wait till the following night yeah. to get the other I'll side. I'll be
1: done. like, make sure you lay on your other side tonight, so I can. It would be funny, I swear to God, I might do that. You'll be like, it wasn't
0: me, it was the Tooth Fairy, bruh.
1: I'll just say it was Lily. No, I'll say it was you. I'll be like, Bryce, there's no way it could have been me, because I can't see you up there, I'm too short. But Shelly...
0: No, do you know what, he knows it wasn't me. Do you know why you would know it wasn't me? Because I'd do it in daytime, and he'd be awake, and he'd be sat there taking it (laughs) like a man. I figured
1: I figure we'll just do like a... I'll just take the clippers and go right across the top of his just head. Just do it.
0: I'll hold him still. <laughs> you just clip him right in the middle of his head. Yeah, you'll have, to, you'll have to have the rest of it done.
1: Yeah, okay. Back to this interview we've just listened to. It's cool how they've got both sides of an issue covered almost, isn't it? Like she's like the spiritual element and he's sort of the factual... Scientific. Scientific yeah. Ele- element, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, I think that it works really well, and I think it works really well in the book as well. It's a well-rounded approach to the subject, I think.
1: Yeah, I actually did quite enjoy reading the book. Uh, There's a lot of things in there that we didn't get to talk about on this interview, but you really should check out the book. It's pretty good.
0: Yes, absolutely. And you also should check out our website if you get the chance. Go to www.weirdwackywonderful.co.uk. We will have all of the updates of the documentary that bruce was talking about during the interview when he gives us that when that comes out so we'll let you know all about that as well and also you can find other information about our shows and other people that we've interviewed there as well you can also go to the about page and learn a little bit more about us and ruth roper wild and richard lenny as well should you wish to do so and tom of course
1: yeah we can't forget tom
0: no we definitely can't so until next we speak please do remain Weird, weird, wacky, wacky, and and wonderful. wonderful. Bye. Bye, y'all.